This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is March 14th, later in the afternoon. Uh, we've had a couple days of <clears throat> the S&P jumping as banks rebounds. But obviously, that's really what we're going to be talking about. We had the largest bank scare really since 08, called the regional bank. But I think SVB was ranked uh, 16th or something, largest bank in the country. So the whole kind of rural, quaint boutique just doesn't seem like an app fit. But, um, you know, that's that's kind of what, what happened. I mean, obviously, there's duration risks. They weren't marketing the market. But, Tim, I'll let you explain everything because it is, in a lot of ways, the biggest bank run on banks in a long time and obviously the biggest scare since 08. So. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have particular expertise in the regional bank world. I did spend about an hour on the phone with a buddy of mine who's been covering the regionals uh, for probably 30 years on both the sell side and the buy side because I just wanted to kind of sanity check some of my thoughts uh, around all this. And, you know, he was he was as surprised as anybody. Like, people did not see this coming. Like, everything's obvious in retrospect. But this wasn't an easy call. You know, you look at 15 out of 19 analysts on Wall Street uh, who covered this thing up to a couple weeks ago had buys on it. Now, the fact is, and he said the same thing, if you're, if you're in an investment bank, and you're covering Silicon Valley Bank and all the importance of Silicon Valley Bank. If you wanted to put a sell on that thing, you are taking massive career risk. Uh, you just couldn't do it. Like, it. like there's a reason why there was no sells on this thing. So I don't know. That's my, that's my weekly uh, indictment of sell side research. Um, but look, so all of the risk now is about uh, what is going to happen with the regional banks, or at least that is the question of the day, and then you get CPI this morning, and you're reminded, oh my God, we still got inflation to deal with. Yeah. So I, I think we'll talk about all of those things. You know, I think people now pretty well understand what happened at Silicon Valley and at Signature. There was some customer concentration risk, some depositor concentration risk, a lot of illiquidity, and as you say, uh, a, a a massive duration uh, mismatch. Um, and if there's a run on the bank, there's a run on the bank. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. Like I was asking my buddy, like, you know, I understand if you have held to, if you have held to maturity securities, you don't hedge those because the assumption is they're just going to, going to expire at par and you'll be fine. And what could they have done to avoid this? Because, because I think of it as like a bad trade. You're in a bad trade, you're long some stock. It's going against you. You realize the fundamental story that you thought you had was wrong. What do you do? Well, the right thing to do and what good traders do is they cut their losses and they move on. What shitty traders do is they prey and they just hope that it gets better. And there was some of that in Silicon Valley. It had to become very clear to them a pretty long time ago that the interest rate risk and the inflation risk that they were incurring was wrong. Uh, and they needed to be much more aggressive. So what they would have had to do is a long time ago had to come to Jesus moment with the street and say, we are pulling this stuff out of held to maturity. We are going to uh, we have been aggressively now uh, hedging our interest rate and inflation risk. And you still might have had a run on the bank. I mean, no bank out there has enough cash to deal with 
a high percentage of their depositors wanting their money back. They just don't. That's not how it's set up. And, you know, and Peter Thiel goes out and says to a fairly small community, this isn't a bunch of mom and pops who wanted their money out. It was, you know, dozens of uh, venture capital firms and other firms that had just gotten funding and so on who got the same message from Peter Thiel and said, okay, we better get our money out. And in a number of hours, they had $40 billion of withdrawals. Of course, the, the regulators in San Francisco, the San Francisco Fed sees that and they're like, okay. We got to step in. And basically, that's the same thing that happened with Signature. So it's it's kind of hard. It, they grew so fast in 20 and 21 when rates were so low and they bought so much in mortgage-backed securities and long-term bonds that it, it seems to me that once they did that, once they made that decision, they were probably screwed. You you, you know, you, you, you could have hedged it. You could have pulled that out of hedge to uh, held to maturity. But the rate at which they grew when rates were so low, it was going to make it a really tough slog when the Fed was about to go on a 500 basis point uh, tightening cycle. So I think it's important for our listeners to kind of describe the difference of why the FDIC and what they're doing um, yeah. and in response to Yellen's you know, um, commentary. Why is this different than just a traditional bank bailout that we might have seen in, in the last recession? Yeah, because these guys, you know, it's not like these guys made a bunch of terrible loans and, uh, and, and, and they always knew that they had the bailout like you had in the savings and loan crisis where you had a real moral hazard. It doesn't strike me like they had the, the, the FDIC, the Fed, the Treasury had much of a choice. One of the problems that you're going to have, if you're already having, is that people are taking their money out of small community banks, regional banks, and they're putting it at JP Morgan, right? So if you didn't, if you didn't backstop depositors at 100%, you were going to exacerbate that issue, and you could have had a situation where you have basically a slow run on the bank across the 4,000 banks that aren't JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup. Uh, and they, you know, the Fed just couldn't couldn't have that. So, and look, I understand the moral hazard argument. On the other hand, you know, everybody in senior management at Silicon Valley Bank is a hell of a lot poorer than they thought they were. You know, a lot of these guys in senior management, I'm sure, had ten million dollars or more of of you know options and equity and grants and all that that are all zeros. Uh, the equity holders are zeros. The unsecured debt uh, people are zeros. So I get the, the moral hazard part, but it's not like these guys were incurring crazy or didn't believe they were incurring crazy risk. And they just said, oh, what the hell, if we get into trouble, the Fed will bail us out. This is not the outcome that they were uh, that they were looking for. So I, I think the Fed ultimately did uh, what they had to do. Although I do think like if I was... <clears throat> You know, corporate board of Roku, I'd be pretty frustrated right now um, with the due diligence process. And that's probably the same with a lot of unicorn startups, right? Um, what do you mean you're not marketing the market? Um, you know, why Why is these all heavily weighted in 30-year MBSs and, and, and you know, right. treasuries? And, um, so yeah. definitely, you know, wasn't, I don't think, insidious. But yeah, I, I do think there was a due diligence issue up. Yeah, the, but as I say, as soon as as soon as you got into 22 and you got into the Fed hiking cycle to look like it was, it was probably all over but the crying already. Like, mm -hmm. you know, 
because you had such an, uh, an incredible duration risk and inflation has been so much more persistent than these guys obviously wanted to believe. But, you know, they, they should have been hedging their duration risk and managing that duration a hell of a lot better from the outset. What do you think it means for a regulatory environment? Um, you know, obviously people are bringing back Dodd-Frank and yeah, as, 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 as this, these things happen, but... Yeah, I mean, old Barney Frank is, a, you know, he was on the board at Signature. He's taking a million dollars a year. He's actually lobbying to roll back some of the Dodd-Frank regulations that might have helped them avoid this. I, I don't know what it means for the regulatory environment. I think the more interesting question is, what does it mean for the economy? Because mm -hmm. now all of the banks, they got to hold on to depositors, right? So that means they have to give you a little something for that hundred grand you've got in your savings account instead of almost nothing. Because as soon as you move it into a money market, that no longer is a deposit for them. That's no longer on their balance sheet. So they need to keep that money on their balance sheet, those deposits. So that's called deposit beta. Deposits need to go up. Well, if your cost of capital, your deposits, the price is going up, that's going to compress your net interest margins. So I think what you're seeing, even in the KRE today, which is the bank ETF, it was off to the races this morning, but it's been kind of fading as the day goes on because it's like, okay, probably not gonna have more run on the banks. Why bother with a run on the bank if, if we know the FDIC is gonna insure 100% of deposits, but what does it mean for earnings? Uh, and it probably means that earnings are gonna get compressed as their net interest margins get compressed. It also has, more importantly, implications for the economy in that if your net interest margins are not going to be very good, it probably means you really got to make sure your credit is tight. Um, so I was, I was talking to another person today who's, who's developing houses, and he said he doesn't think he's going to move forward because he doesn't think he can get reasonable financing on a construction loan. So this does have an effect. It is going, we've been talking about this a lot with the senior loan officer survey, that not only is cost of capital going higher through interest rates going higher, uh, but, but, but capital is also getting less available. And the other thing you see in the senior loan officer survey is like my buddy, they're not even trying. So we are seeing this, this does slow the economy and create more of a drag on the economy. Um, but, you know, you look at CPI today, still running at 6%, you know, super core, uh, as Fed call, as, as Powell calls it, which is, uh, you know, services x housing, services x housing and energy is still way too high. Health food inflation is still running at 9%. So, you know, I, I think that now that the Fed and the Treasury has kind of solved this near-term issue, now they got to deal with what they're dealing with, which is the economy going forward. And my guess is they'll they'll have to stay on a tightening cycle. It obviously removes the possibility of a 50-bit move. Uh, but my guess is they're going to keep going and they're going to say they're data dependent. Look, they keep you, one would assume that at this point the economy would have slowed more. It hasn't, which tells you that certain aspects of this inflationary period that we are is entrenched and that's a word you're going to hear a lot of when inflation gets entrenched it doesn't come down quick all of the transitory stuff you know supply chains and all that that's not entrenched inflation what is entrenched inflation is wage expectations and people are expecting to get paid more you saw it in the nfib this morning where the what's the number one complaint what's the number one issue i still can't find talented people 
If you need to fill a role, what are you going to do? You got to pay somebody more. Yeah, and, and that kind of would have been my follow-up, but I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when we were talking last week, you look at the CME tracker, and it was overwhelmingly market expectations were that we were going to see a 50 yeah. basis point. And now it's about the same in line as now it's just going to be a quarter. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the expectations on the street so far. But expectations are all over the map. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got this this economist from Numira, who I didn't know previous to this week, who says that the Fed needs to, it thinks that they will cut by 25 basis points and immediately stop QT. Um, the uh, Joe Lavornia, uh, who's a friend of mine and a very good economist, he was on CNBC this morning, and he's one of these guys who's like the classic economist who looks at everything in terms of, you know, M2 being negative, liquidity being drained, the yield curve being 110 basis points inverted as of yeah. last week. And he's on CNBC this morning, and I know Joe, and it cracked me up, he goes, this is stupidity. This is just stupid. We are going into a recession. The Fed has done enough. There are long and variable lags. And then and then you have other, you have the consensus, as you said, which is and which is what the bond uh, Fed fund futures are pricing in, is that you probably will get 25 basis points because I think where people would say to Joe, Joe, you're probably right. We we may have a recession, but with the data we have right now, we're not making any progress on wages. And the Fed isn't going to can't stop and just say, we'll see when you just haven't made progress on wages. Yeah. And you mentioned the yield uh, curve steepening. I mean, that represents the biggest three day move since the stock market crash in 87 um, yeah. <laughs> in terms of inversion. So, yeah. yeah, it's an ominous warning, you know, on one of the bleeding indicators, which is, you know, a two and 10 year um, inverted curve. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you have this this massive bond market volatility. I mean, when was the last time, you know, we the moves in the two year are bigger than any of the moves that you saw in 07, 08. I mean, that's some meaningful volatility. I, I, I follow a, a fixed income trader uh, who was saying that his his kind of quantitative risk range for the two year has never been higher in, in the whole history of his back test. Um, so you just, so, you know, the, what that means is that the street doesn't know, like, we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody as of two weeks ago was really worried about a top two, top 20 banks in the country going bust. Like this is where, as they say, shit breaks. And we don't know what breaks next. Like the fed is ring fenced this shit, this issue but we don't know what the next issue is going to be. So volatility is high and everybody's got to have enough humility to say when the two years whipping around like a biotech with, you know, controversial data, maybe it's time to sit back, not take a little risk, increase my cash type instruments, take less equity risk, take less, less fixed income and duration risk, put my money under the proverbial mattress while collecting 5%, by the way, and you know sleep at night mm -hmm. absolutely um anything else for the good of the order <laughs> i love that um you know I, I i think one of the things that's interesting is that you know we're in uh we're in mid-march here we're only a few months away and less than that really uh on all the saber rattling that is going to happen in congress with 
between basically McCarthy and Biden on the debt ceiling. Um, you know, what one of the things that you are seeing already is obviously off of very low levels, but credit default swaps on U.S. government debt are moving up. And they're moving up off of a very low level, but kind of parabolically. Like, this is, could be, the next real risk and shoot a drop. So I think we have to have an eye on the debt ceiling because I think it just suggests to me that um, that uh, we are not out of the woods from a volatility standpoint. Uh, and the Republicans are dead serious about this. I mean, look, there is an argument to be made that one of the things that has exacerbated inflation is not just way too easy monetary policy, but way too easy fiscal policy. And, you know, we are past a, a much of the spending around the bailout. And yet we're going to have a we're going to have a trillion and a half deficit in 2023, maybe higher, by the way. We'll see how receipts come in as we all pay our taxes. Um, while inflate, while, while the unemployment rate was uh, until a week ago, 3.4 percent. Like that is a lot of um that is way too much, way too easy of a fiscal environment. I'm not saying it's too much spending. Probably is too much spending. It's probably too less taxation uh, and a combination of both. And, you know, as as Congress gets worse at what they do, um, you know, I have very little confidence that they're going to uh, kind of come to a resolution in a thoughtful way that makes global bond investors say, you know what? They got a pretty well-run shop over there in the uh, in the House of Representatives. Yeah, no, they, and you see they're touching the third rail a little bit. I mean, obviously Nikki Haley's not sitting in Congress, but it was, look, if you're in your 20s right now, we got to seriously look at raising the retirement age in terms of Social Security yeah. receipts, and so you know I'm not ruling out some kind of accommodation on you know Social Security or Medicare, or at least they'll push for it, but. But yeah, it's it's uh, definitely kind of the albatross. Yeah, yeah, I, we'll see. I, you know, Biden has dug in his heels. Uh, he doesn't, in the degree to which he's dug in his heels already, um, I can't see him. And the Republicans are saying, after clearly saying that they wanted to make adjustments to Social Security and Medicare, they're saying, of course, we don't want to make adjustments mm -hmm. to Social Security and Medicare. So what are we even really talking about? Are Republicans going to come out and say we want to make huge cuts to defense spending? Yeah, uh, I doubt it. Uh, so, so we'll see. I, I, I have no idea how this transpires, but I doubt that they cover themselves in glory along the way. No, I mean we're an insurance company with an army. I mean, this, <laughs> this is what the United States is. So you got to either go after the insurance aspect or the army aspect. But you look at a federal budget pie yeah. chart, and that's you know, right. which I think more people take five minutes to look at. It's like, oh, okay, this is what we're really talking about in terms of where taxes go. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we get some relief on uh, on the energy side. Maybe we get, you know, uh, energy prices are still not, you know, we're going to have a recession in the United States, I think. I don't know when we're going to have a recession, but we are going to have a recession eventually. There will be a recession in Europe. Uh, so it takes a lot of oil demand off the table. And Russia seems to be sending a lot of oil, pushing a lot of oil into India, into China, which is taking uh, down kind of that uh, that Asian premium. Uh, so, you know, you, you are seeing some relief on the energy side. Uh, that certainly helps. Uh, and, and, and maybe, hopefully, G, 
you know, he's going to have a phone call with Zelensky. Maybe he's not uh, going to start uh, adding uh, weaponry to the Russian ar- arsenal. That would really be truly a disaster. So, I, I, if we're going to, if we want to end it on a good note, um, you know, China recovery still seems to be in place, though we're not seeing this massive pent-up spending that people hope to see out of China. But still, you have some improvement in demand. Uh, you have oil prices acting okay. Those are at least a couple of pressures uh, off of all the negative narratives that are deservedly out there. And what do you think about the Chinese kind of brokering some kind of arrangement between the Iranians and the Saudis and you know, acting as you know, a peacemaker in the region? You know, I, I think that's part of it, uh, that, that they want to be part of the world community, that it's not just it's our desire to be a hegemonic power of the East and nobody's going to tell us we can't invade and blockade Taiwan. So I, I think it's I, I think it's partly a positive as much. I've read quite a bit about um, the, the peace process there, um, you know. I don't quite understand what the Chinese are going to get out of it outside of just better relationships with both the Saudis and the Iranians. One of the issues the Iranians have is underinvestment in their uh, in their energy stockpile. So maybe maybe that's where the Chinese see that they will make greater investments in Iran. Uh, and that I mean they're an importer of energy, so uh, energy inflation is a is a problem for China. So maybe the core uh, goal for them is to help increase production in Iran and take down geopolitical risk in the Middle East, uh, because their core goal, my guess, is tamping down energy inflation. Yeah, and I think it coincides broadly with the Canadians are making a big run at the rail earth uh, materials, right? So. The negotiations with the Europeans and the Canadians are obviously interested, and the Europeans are as well, in acquiring a lot more rare earth materials, which are in Canada, which is vast deposits. Just Canada is obviously majority of the country is located within a few hundred miles of the U.S. border, but untapped resources in the north. And then I don't know as far as the Middle East goes, it's just it it, it will change the alignment a little bit because with the Abraham Accords, you do, you did see the Saudis and the Israelis kind of moved to a better peace yeah. situation than they've been in decades. I mean, obviously they're yeah. not like Jordan or Egypt, but yeah. maybe moving in that direction. Um, and now what does that mean now that the, if the Saudis break bread with the Iranians, yeah. which has always been the two juggernauts of the region, yeah. you know, they've always, just, always disliked it, each it, other. It's just impossible for me mm-hmm. to believe that, you know, the Sunni Saudis uh, are going to come to the defense of the Shia Iranians mm-hmm. if the Israelis make the decision that okay, the Iranian nuclear program has gone as far as we're comfortable with. We're gonna we're gonna start to light some stuff up over there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Pull another sneaky peek. I don't, outside I don't see it, any natural alliances uh, out there. No, and and on the U.S. front, it's not like I mean that came that came to a house vote with Matt Gates in terms of taking out 900 soldiers in Syria. And it was voted down overwhelmingly, really, Um, you know, about an equal chunk of Republicans and Democrats. But then the blob was overwhelmingly. We still we still have positions in in the region. So it's just it's just another entanglement that's got broad implications. But yeah. And on the entanglement front, it's interesting that DeSantis, who has been uh, kind of equivocating on what he wants to do with the Ukraine after being pressed by Tucker Carlson, decided 
okay, I'm anti the war in the Ukraine. It's a regional conflict. We mm -hmm. shouldn't be aiding either side. We shouldn't be involved. That seems to be the position of the furthest right within the House, and it certainly is not the position of the moderate Republicans in the Senate. So, but, you know, it is an anti-entanglement, an anti, um, uh, sort of an anti, you know, global democratic view. Um, we'll see how that progresses, but I got to think he is now uh, the front runner. The CNN poll had uh, out, had him pretty close to Trump and uh, the direction is not Trump's friend. So as he takes that view, you know, he, he's made a very calculated bet that that's what's going to work for Republican voters. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to be Trump's view as well. And I mean, the primaries, they're just kicking it off in Iowa. But if there's more Republicans, you got to think that goes into the former president's favor uh, with vote splitting just because you've got a more animated base. But we'll see. I mean, the, their positions on that issue seem to be pretty similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Sounds good, Tim. Well, thanks for all our listeners. Um, back at it next week and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.